0: Welcome to the Forager podcast where I talk with food entrepreneurs about their strategies for running a food business from home. I'm David Crable and today I'm talking with Lee Thomas who is the first Miko I've had on the show. I'll explain more about that in a bit but a quick reminder we are just a couple months away from the home-based food entrepreneur conference. This is the only national conference for our industry so you're not going to want to miss it. It's a virtual four-day conference that goes from April 10th Through April 13th, so four full days of keynotes, workshops, breakout sessions, and perhaps most importantly, the community that you'll get to interact with along the way. Now, most multi-day virtual conferences like this cost well over $100, but this conference will only cost you $35, and yes, that price includes everything, and even if you can't attend during the day, you'll still get access to all the recordings that you can watch on your own time. So if you haven't registered yet, you can sign up right now by going to cottagefoodconference.com. All right, so I have Lee Thomas on the show today, and this is a pretty unique story. Lee lives in San Leandro, California. He actually just recently ran for mayor of San Leandro, but he also sells barbecue meats and veggies with his home-based food business, Q. Now you might be thinking, wait. He sells barbecued meats? That can't be a legal cottage food business in California. And no, it's not. Lee is actually a licensed micro-enterprise home kitchen operation, or MECO for short. So to quickly catch you up, back in 2018, California passed this first-of-its-kind MECO law to essentially allow home-based micro-restaurants. Utah now also has a MECO law, and other states are looking to adopt one as well. But California's MECO law came with a big catch, which was that each county had to adopt an ordinance for the law to apply in that county. And ordinances can take a long time. So basically, lots of people got excited about the new law, and then lots of people got disappointed when they realized they couldn't actually use it. And one of those people was Lee. But instead of getting disappointed, he realized that he could leverage his political connections to help get an ordinance passed. And that's exactly what he did. And he became the first licensed Miko in Alameda County. Now, there's a lot more to this story, but I will let you discover that along the way. So with that, let's jump right into this episode. Welcome to the show, Lee. Nice to have you here. (laughs) Thanks for having me. So, Lee, uh, you know, usually I have people start by talking about their business, but we're recording this in November. This actually isn't going to air until 2023, but it was just a week ago that the election happened. And I know you ran for mayor. And so it's just in real time happening right now. So I just want to start with that and ask you, like, what was it like to run for mayor of San Leandro?
1: Oh, I tell you, it was a it was a great experience. You know, being a former council member in the city of San Leandro, I was pretty much used to what it actually took to run a campaign. But this experience was quite different from when I ran for city council because the stakes felt a lot higher as you were running for mayor. And the amount of tension that was needed and the amount of people that you spoke to and the interactions that you actually had with folks was quite different from running for a council seat versus a mayor seat. And so ultimately, great experience, lots of volunteer support, lots of donor support. And you know, if anyone knows anything about running for office, it's like you build a, a mini company in a short amount of time.
0: Yeah. I mean, I know you didn't win, but what do you feel like you took away from this experience?
1: I just hope that I inspire next generation of African Americans to run for office in the city of San Leandro. If uh, anyone knows anything about San Leandro, it was at one point one of the most racist cities in America and a sun sun up sundown city for a place where African Americans couldn't really be. And to be the second African American to run for mayor in the last sixteen years. I just hope that if anything, I inspired a generation of African-American youth or even adults or young adults that said, you know, Lee went out and did this. He put it all out there. He left it all out here in an attempt to become the next mayor of San Leandro serve the people of San Leandro. And I just hope I inspired them to feel passionate enough about getting into service and believing that they can actually do it. And so while we were unsuccessful this time, I'm hoping that one day, the city of San Leandro considering its dark history will see an african american lead the city
0: obviously didn't win but i saw that you were endorsed by a lot of people and a lot of mayors including the current mayor of San Leandro like it seemed like you you had a, at least pretty decent positioning to win right Yeah, no, absolutely. I
1: mean, I've been so grateful and lucky to be able to build relationships with politicians throughout Alameda County. I was endorsed by almost every mayor in Alameda County, except for, I think, three. And really just felt good to know that they believed in me to be able to run for office. They believed that I could be the next mayor of San Leandro and do good. And it just goes to show that if you build the right relationships, and you do what you ultimately set out to do, which is make an impact and support people and help people and make change, people will see that and they'll recognize that.
0: We're going to get into your business in a little bit, but almost everybody who listens to this podcast has never given a think about running for mayor. And I was just curious, like election day, what is that like? I mean, that must've been just a crazy day.
1: Oh, it's, it's, you know, it's nerve-wracking, right? Uh, because you, know, you wake up in the morning, you know it's election day. If you're not voting in person, you've already submitted your ballot. You've got people reaching out to you who said, hey, Lee, good luck, and they voted for you, and you're, you're having these sparse conversations throughout the day, and you're receiving text messages of people who are telling you good luck tonight, and you're literally waiting for the polls to close at 8 o'clock. And once the polls close at eight o'clock, you're then waiting from about eight to about 8.15, potentially 8.20 for the results to come out. And so, you know, your stomach's kind of twisted, the anticipation is there, and you just don't know what to like expect. And as you wait and wait, you know, you eventually find out that months and months of walking and knocking on doors, uh, what the result is actually going to be. And so- It's a little nerve wracking, but yet at the same time, it's a great feeling knowing knowing that you came to the end of a finish line, that you worked hard to try to get something done and you make connections and spoken with folks. And it also felt really great just receiving text messages from citizens who were like really rooting for you. And I think if anything, what's hard about an election is that you feel bad for the folks or not bad, but you feel sad that you weren't able to get into office to do the work that you knew you know you could do when you had so many people supporting you because you wanted to do it for them as well
0: leading up to election day like did you already have a pretty good sense that you weren't going to win or did you really have no idea at 8 p.m on election day what the results were going to be
1: Oh no, I mean we myself and my team, we felt really confident. We felt that we we felt that we picked up a lot of momentum towards the last couple months of the of the election. And, you know, with ranked choice voting, we really thought we were going to be in the top two there. Unfortunately, we weren't, but I think, you know, there's a lot of factors that go into potentially why you weren't in the top two, why you, you know, didn't win. I think the hardest part about elections and running for office is you can't actually really pinpoint what worked and what did not work when you were campaigning. You can look at all the data that you want after the fact, after all of the ballots have been closed. And, but at the end of the day, I don't think there's one particular strategy that you can say you should have done or maybe we should not have done because you have to put your trust in the voters,
0: so when you finally knew, like you had definitely lost, what was the feeling like?
1: Well, I think once again, running for office, it's it's a mental, it's all a mental game. You're working on trying to not be distracted by what your opponents might be doing. You're working on not trying to be distracted by what naysayers are doing. You know, you're building up the shield. As you build up the shield, the shield is going to it's going to protect you in two ways. One, it protects you throughout the election from being able to rub off the negativity that might come your way. But second, what it really does is, you know, it preps you for election night. You know, you're, you have to be ready mentally for a loss. And as much as I was mentally prepared for a win, I prepare myself uh, mentally for a loss because, you know, I know that, you know what, there's a lot of things that, can still be accomplished with not being in office. You know, for me, uh, yeah, it was a sad moment, but yet it wasn't a moment that I felt defeated because I know there's still a lot that I could do even not being an elected official.
0: Yeah, I mean, you, will, you won't be the next mayor of the next term, but you certainly have done a lot and will continue to do a lot. I mean, can you walk through some of the things? I know you've been on the city council. What are some of the other things you've done to support the city and the community of San Leandro?
1: Oh, yeah. You know, uh, I'll be going into my ninth year as the founder of the New Shoes for School Drive. And uh, essentially what that is, is I raise money every year and I get donors and sponsors and I raise enough money anywhere between, you know, $3,000 to $4,000 every summer. And then I work directly with the San Leandro Unified School District who then works on putting a, a group of students together and families who are underserved and, you know, will take anywhere between, you know, 50 to 60 kids uh, shopping for brand new pairs of shoes. And so it's just a, a real great feeling to continue to be able to give back. Last year, or not last year, but this year, we did a fundraiser with the San Diego girls softball team for equipment and toy drives. I recently did a fundraiser for Spectrum Community Service that supports seniors at fall prevention, and they provide meals for seniors. And so let's be able to do things like that. And then just being in service clubs, you know, I'm a member of the San Leandro Rotary, and I'm a member of the San Leandro Scholarship Foundation. So I continue to just have impact in San Leandro just through service.
0: You know, I know that the barbecue business is just a side thing, right? So what is your career?
1: Monday through Friday, I work for Oakland Unified School District, and I'm an administrator in the district there. And my job title, I'm a community school manager. So essentially, I'm in charge of bringing all partnerships into schools, coordinating outside partners who might want to come into school and do work with our youth and families. And on top of that, really just being able to support families with social service work. Unfortunately, sometimes domestic violence needs, housing, food insecurity, A wide range of things that I think a lot of people sometimes don't know is that in order for a student to be successful in school, there's got to be a wide range of wraparound services to help them at the same time. And that's really my job there is, you know, if you've got a kid, you know, with no insurance and they've got a toothache, well, they're not going to be able to enjoy lunch. You're not going to be able to have the focus that they need in the classroom. And so my job there is to work on getting the family connected with services so we can figure out how to help that kid with the toothache. So on top of just that doing being a Monday through Friday job, I also serve as union president for the administrators in Oakland, where I represent 300 administrators and essentially make sure that, you know, they're getting paid for what they deserve.
0: So it sounds like the common thread that I'm seeing here is just a lot of service, a lot of support, a lot of community support, it just seems like that's who you are. Like, would you agree? Like, that's the common theme behind everything you do?
1: Oh, absolutely. I would say that this was instilled for me from my first job at the YMCA. And one of the things that I learned through my years, and I spent about almost 20 years with the YMCA, was you didn't really do the job as much for the pay as much you did for service. And that just kind of got instilled in me as a kid and as a young adult. And, you know, I've just kind of taken it with me the whole way.
0: Well, that's a good transition into Grilly Q, into your barbecue company, right? Like, why did you choose to start this barbecue business?
1: Oh, well, uh, Grilly Q, first of all, Vinny. Anyone uh, wants to know, uh, grilly Q is just it. It's a play off of my name, G R I L L E E Q. So grill, lee, and then Q. So that is <laughs> that's the creation of the name. First of all, second is um, I barbecued a lot in college, and I wasn't very good at it in the beginning. And barbecued with three of my good buddies, and we host these gatherings at our place. It was we'll barbecue the meat, if you bring over the beverages. And so that's how we put the parties together. But eventually, uh, as we you know, continue to grow and we move on to become adults, I just kind of stayed with barbecue. I really enjoyed it. And so I went from barbecuing to barbecuing for family on a regular basis. And every year I have at my house, I host a huge 4th of July party. It's an annual thing that my wife and I do. I break out anything and everything on the grill. And so when AB 626 came along and I was actually still in office and I was looking at it, you know, when I was in office and then when I didn't go back into office as a council member, I reached out to Cook Alliance because at first it was all about, boy, I would really love to do this and do a barbecue business. But the more I really dove into the bill, going back to the, what we just talked about service. I realized that I could have a substantial impact in like changing lives for folks. And so making the push to be able to get that bell passed, as much as it was yes for me because I wanted to barbecue and I wanted to share my passion for barbecuing with other folks, it started with me, but then it reverted not being all about me and being about what I could actually do for other people.
0: Right. So just to let anyone know who doesn't know, AB626 is the... Microenterprise home kitchen operation, or MICO bill that was passed through California in 2018. And one of the unique things about the law that was passed is that every single county had to create an ordinance to actually allow the law in their county. And you know, at that point, there was only one county that did, which is Riverside County. But I guess you learned about the law after it had already been passed, and like had it already gone into effect by the time you actually heard about the law. Correct. Was the law what caused you to want to start this business? Or did you already like have the seeds in your head of starting this business before this?
1: Well, yeah, I already had the seeds in my head, right? I mean, you can say off the grid, I was already doing you know things for family and friends, right? Just wasn't really advertising that. And so the seeds were already there. It was more about how do I get a chance to do this? And do it legally, right? My first true initial drive was how do I get involved in this and get this thing passed in Alameda County? Because I want to be legit. I want to sell barbecue, right? And I had already written a business plan, you know, the name was established, you know, but it was about the implementation of being able to do it without having the fear of someone coming and knocking on my door saying, you can't sell barbecue, right? But as much as I wanted to do it, you know, I'm blessed to be able to have a Monday through Friday, you know, a uh, good paying job, right? And so, you know, yes, it's a, it's a side hustle for me. It's a, a way to be able to share something I'm passionate about and be fortunate enough to call it a side hustle. But this is not a hustle for some folks. This is a like legitimate way of saying this is the skill set that I have. I know that I can do it. And you know what? I need money. I need to be able to make a living. I got bills to pay. I got mouths to feed. And that became just such a driving force for me, knowing that when I think about mouths to feed, rent to pay, bills to pay, like I'm thinking about immigrants and people of color and, you know, single moms. And for me, yeah, it wasn't as much as about, I need to get this bill passed because I want to start grilly cute. It was about, I need to get this bill passed because we got people out here trying to cook
0: to live. So, I know it took a little bit of time to actually get that ordinance passed. And that's true of pretty much every county that has passed the law so far. But when do you remember first selling your barbecue to somebody?
1: Oh boy. It was friends, random friends. I can't remember, you know, what year it actually was, but it was as easy as someone just, you know, a friend of mine just saying, you know, can you grill us some chicken for a party? And I can tell you that was probably, you know, prior to opening Grilly Q, I remember one day sitting here saying, wow, I think I can actually sell my food when people started asking about it. or people started saying, me, your food's really good. And it was right kind of then and there, like it became more of the reality of something that was a hobby and something that I was actually passionate about could actually start to make some money for me.
0: So it sounds like you're, you know, just kind of selling to friends or family or whatever on the side, you know, for a while, which is very common. That's one thing. But it's another to actually like come out, establish a business, create a business name and actually promote your business without having a lot to back you. And I know you did that. At what point did you decide to just, you know, I'm going to put myself out there, even if it's not legal, Did you have ambitions to get the ordinance passed soon at that point, or did you just know that that wasn't really an option? You know, there was a point,
1: it took us about three years here in Alameda County to, you know, work through the bureaucracy and get it adopted here. And it just came to a point where I said, you know what? I'd rather be the poster boy for getting shut down and yet being able to use data and be able to show that people buy from me and no one's gotten sick from the food that I've eaten that they've bought from me. And that was really like my motive, right? Is to just kind of buck the system a little bit to show that, you know what? I'm doing everything that's right here. I've got a food manager license. I've taken the class and I'm doing everything within the parameters that the bill actually says to do. And yet, as we were working, you know, through through the bureaucracy here in, in Alameda County, and you know, seeing some potential—I wouldn't say as much pushback, as much as more just hesitation—I just thought it was really important to be able to say, "Look, this works. No one gets. No one's getting sick, and there's a need for it."
0: Well, one thing that really brought this to the surface was the pandemic, right? And you had already started advertising, and promoting your business before the pandemic happened, then the pandemic happened. Did you see a shift at that point? I mean, what was it like to kind of walk your business through the start of the pandemic?
1: Oh, absolutely. You know, so when I put my first initial business plan together, what I was doing is I was loading up my Weber grills and I was going to people's homes here in San Leandro and I was cooking in their backyards well, when the pandemic hit, the first realization for me was when people started calling me. And if anyone remembers, you know, the supermarkets, you know, there was, you know, everyone went and, and bought up as much meat as possible. And, you know, all the supplies, everyone was worried, right? And it was right then and there that I started having friends call me and say, Lee, can't you barbecue with some food, Right. Because for them, it was also like they would go to the, you know, they're going to the supermarkets and they can't find meat. And so it was right then and there, like I'm going to the butchers, the meat suppliers, and I'm being able to buy meat and I'm being able to cook meals for folks. And at that time, once again, the shift was really noticeable to me because I'm whipping out, you know, several meals a week for folks because what they're doing is then they're just, they're eating it through the week, but then they start, you know, they're freezing it at the same time. And so it was pretty obvious that I had to make that shift with the pandemic and really just wrap up the sales from my own home because it was an actual need. And when we went to uh, the county, the final push for us was this was, you know, it was a COVID response. You have to pass this now because it's a COVID response for people to be able to cook and sell food from their home.
0: So as you were trying to get the ordinance passed in Alameda, I know you didn't get shut down, but of course there is a whole thing with the broke ass cooks fiasco, right? Like, can you share what that was and like maybe how that affected things?
1: I think as much as COVID played a role in expediting and speeding this process up, I think the shutdown of folks like broke ass cooks and, you know, anyone else that was shut down in this pandemic was just as an impactful in regards to being able to show that this was a real need. You know, broadcast cooks, it was phenomenal to just see how they exploded and how many people started following them and being able to see them, you know, succeed in such a short time only to see that taken away. I sit here and say this is the one country where you're allowed to go out and make as much money as possible, but yet you are not allowed to make money when you've got certain things preventing you from being able to just do what the American dream is, like be able to make money, be able to succeed and you know, feed your family or do whatever you whatever else you want in life.
0: So would you say that the health department was always really opposed? To passing this ordinance? Like, I know that it ended up not being in their hands, or I think it was the city council that had the ability to pass an ordinance, but were you getting a lot of resistance from the health department through this process?
1: You know, the, the county supervisors, right? Because they were, you know, they were, or to the county supervisors here in Alameda County. And, you know, sometimes, you know, from being a government employee to being a council member, things move slow in government sometimes. Also, things move slow because of hesitation. And I'm not sure if the health department, were they against this as much as they were just more concerned about adding something else to their plate? And how does it look? And working through the logistical details of what does this look like in Alameda County, if on top of restaurant inspections, now we have home inspections to have to add on top of that And so I think some of it was just hesitation for adding more to their plate on top of not really just having a feel for like how this actually helps people, right? I don't think that was ever really on their radar that like Miko's were going to help people versus it was kind of like, well, this is not traditional.
0: Let's say the pandemic never happened. Do you think that you would have eventually gotten an ordinance passed? Or do you think that that sort of had to happen for it even to be a consideration or a priority?
1: Oh, I had no doubt that we would have gotten it passed because at that time, God bless her soul, may she rest in peace, Wilma Chan. Supervisor Wilma Chan was one of the biggest champions for us here in Alameda County in believing in this process. Supervisor Chan was always about family, always about youth. And I think she was able to make the connection of how this was going to be able to support families. And so it might've taken a little bit longer, but I've no doubt we would have passed it.
0: So I know you worked with Matt Jorgensen and the Cook Alliance, and you're considered the lead for Alameda County passing the ordinance. So what were some of the connections or the relationships that you brought to this process that helped get it passed?
1: Well, you know, right out the gates, just because I had the established relationships within the county already. As a former council member, is what allowed us to get a seat at the table quicker and have be able to have the conversations with the supervisor's office here in Alameda County. On top of that, I think I was able to bring a very unique skill to support Cook Alliance, which is just kind of overall strategy of how to work with the local politicians and the things that we actually needed to do to bring attention to the cause. And so being able to be elite was great because not only did I bring just political connections, but I also brought a lens of how to navigate the system and kind of steps and processes that we need to do to try to work, to try to get this thing on the agenda.
0: That's so interesting because I'm, you know, you're trying to do this business to not only just help yourself and start a business and make money, but to help a bunch of people in San Leandro and in Alameda County start their own businesses. But what's interesting is like what you brought to the table. It sounds like in a similar way, like you might've been doing it to help Alameda County get an ordinance passed, but just the process that you went through in Alameda County might, you know, be helping better move that process along forward in other counties as well.
1: Oh yeah. I mean, I can tell you that being able to get it passed here in Alameda County for me, was being able to, like, I want to set the tone, right? I want to be able to say, Look, Alameda County did this, so can you. And for me, there was a bigger picture. Yes, it was, you know, always about being able to help people, but it was also just about, like, let me show you that if Alameda County can do it, hey, any other county can do this as well. One thing that I've learned in government is that there you know there there's copycat counties right and when something is working you will tend to see other political officials jump on that bandwagon and bring it to their county as well
0: you know you went through this big process and it took years like when did it actually pass and what was that day or what was that feeling like when it actually got adopted
1: oh man There was just such a sense of joy when it was finally on the supervisor's agenda and there's five supervisors here in Alameda County and just the overwhelming joy of like, as they did the roll call vote and you're sitting there and you've got, you know, five supervisors and you're, you know, you're hearing a yes, a yes, a yes, and a yes. And you're seeing a unanimous five votes come to support this. I tell you, it was just, it was overwhelming. It was, you know, knowing that three years of hard work, many phone calls, many meetings, many times silence, that it finally just came to fruition. And, you know, that the fact that we didn't give up on it, and even at some times where it seemed like we had no momentum, it was a overwhelming feeling of just like joy and and satisfaction of knowing that we didn't fail.
0: So not only did you help get this ordinance passed, but you were the first legal Miko, right? Sure was. And so what did you actually have to do to get the like permit? Like what was the cost? What was the actual process like?
1: Well, you know, the cost is something that I think we still need to come back and evaluate here in in Alameda County because it's it's currently six hundred and ninety-seven dollars. And to me, that is just a, it's a shame because something that's written to support a specific demographic of people, and yet you tack on a 697 you tack on a permit fee, well, that's the barrier, you know, it becomes an instant barrier. And so that's something I think we've got to continue to kind of work on here in Alameda County. And to answer your question, yes. Yeah, so I, you know, I paid the $697 permit I showed that I had, you know, my food manager license and that I've gone through the required training that is there and essentially being able to just have my house prepped under what was needed. So for instance, you know, being able to show where my food was stored and being able to show that I had the food stored correctly in my refrigerator and that I had a thermostat in my refrigerator and that my refrigerator was running at, the, you know, a, a proper temperature the hot water that was coming out of my sink was running at, you know, the, the temperature. You know, just being able to have the necessary pressure and hot water coming out of there and, you know, showing where, you know, I store my, you know, seasonings, right? And on top of that, I had to fill out their application process, but on top of the application process, you had to pre, you know, fill out your menu and, and load your menu. And on top of the menu, you had to list um, any allergenics, uh, that you may be using as part of your food process. And so um, for me, it was quite easy because I already had a menu made. And so I just transitioned my menu onto their paperwork. It is a little bit of a tedious process for people just starting. And I've been fortunate enough to help two people now kind of work through that paperwork process and, and, and let them know what they needed to do.
0: Would you say that the inspection process ended up being easier or more complicated than you were expecting?
1: I thought it was easier than I expected. (laughs) You know, I remember the first inspection first inspection was the first time I had the health department here at my home and because they I don't even think they knew what to expect, right? And so, you know, they were very thorough and they went down in the list and making sure that I agreed to, you know, the protocol and procedures of, you know, how I was going to sell food and how I was going to prep food. But I noticed a vast difference between the second inspection this summer from the inspectors who looked a little bit more comfortable. And In somebody's home and part of this 697 dollar fee is from my understanding is because they're going into people's homes so they're sending two inspectors with them and i guess which is you know you you, when they do their inspections for restaurants they're not sending two inspectors but because they're going into homes they're they're in pairs and so this second time around it was pretty obvious or i felt it was pretty obvious that the inspectors who came through had gone through a MECO process uh, many times.
0: That is so interesting because even the cottage food law, class B permits since 2013 have had an inspection process. And I have never heard of a county sending two inspectors to inspect somebody's home in any state.
1: I'm absolutely shocked by it as well. It's just interesting because, hey, what's the difference between going into a person's home, maybe to go into a, am I owned a restaurant and I'm the only owner there and I'm the owner there and you come in and it's just myself and an inspector.
0: It's definitely not typical. <laughs> so it's very interesting. Now you went through the permit process. It cost almost $700. You got a food manager training, which is like a hundred bucks or more. And then was there any other permits that you had to get to be legal in San Leandro?
1: Uh, then I've got to pay the San Leandro business license here. And, and so the business license tax here, I pay like 130 bucks for that.
0: So you're, you know, you're almost like a thousand dollars into this before you even get going.
1: Oh yeah, no doubt. You're going to be, you know, look, I've got a, estimated our projected cost of you're gonna, you know, you're gonna be probably anywhere between twelve hundred to fifteen hundred bucks, right? Just to kind of get going. And that is a low estimate if you want to talk about, you know, your website fee, if you know, if you're gonna do a website, if you're gonna, you know, you're gonna have your logo designed and you know if you're gonna buy, you know, stickers or, you know, things like that that you need and then your to go, your to go stuff, right? I mean, I remember my first couple sales, it was on paper plates before I transitioned to like to-go boxes.
0: So you went through this whole process to get your business like legally set up and it is kind of a complicated process, but it's not like you can just be like a commercial restaurant, right? And sell whatever you want, do whatever you want. Like there's quite a bit of limitations to this bill. So what are some of the limiting factors or the restrictions that you have to adhere to as Amico in California?
1: Yeah. So, you know, I I think one of the most challenging parts for Amico is like, especially in in the business that that I'm in, right. And like, I deal in a lot of meats, right. I'm I'm a barbecue business, right. And not being able to marinate your meat ahead of time. So like, that's a challenge, right. I don't know that restriction is in restaurants that you can't marinate your meat. You know, you've got to marinate the same day, sell the same day. Right. And so, Obviously, how do you get around that? You know, you, you, you say, okay, well, I'm going to go ahead and marinate my meat at 12 midnight. I mean, 12 a.m. right the next morning. <laughs> because it's, you know, marinate the same day, sell the same day. The 54, it's now, it was 50, but now it's now up to race, been pushed up to 54,000 a year that you can actually make. It's <laughs> once again, coming back to like, we live in a place where you are encouraged to make as much money as you can. But it's ridiculous that they put a cap on not allowing people to make as much money as they can. It's just like ludicrous to me that you know going outside of any typical business and you're like, hey, you know what? Hey, you restaurant, you're not you're only gonna be allowed to make this much. And if you go past this much, you know, you've got problems, right? And so there's a limitation, $54,000 a year. There's a limitation on how much you can cook and sell. It's like 30 meals in a day or 60 meals in a week that you can actually do that as well. You can have a deliver. You could, you know, one person in your family could actually be able to deliver. You can't use third party deliverers unless it's for uh, the purpose of serving somebody with a disability. And so there are some restrictions. Um, Some of it I understand, I guess, because the last thing you need is someone putting food safety at risk of trying to turn their whole kitchen into a commercial kitchen. So I can kind of see a correlation there. But yet at the same time, I just can't believe that you put a, a financial cap on something that you're allowing somebody to call their actual business.
0: I, mean, I think one of the reasons, I don't think it's for the cap, but I think, you know, the limitation for how many meals you can sell is like they don't want neighborhoods to feel like business centers, right? Like they don't want someone running like a full fledged restaurant, you know, people coming and picking up and parking issues. Like, I don't know. Is that, you think that's part of the reason why there are the limitations?
1: Oh, no doubt. I I have no doubt that that has something to do with it, right? I mean, the last thing you need are cars double parked or people's, you know, driveways being parked or like mass lines going out the side of someone's house because they're waiting to pick up food, right? I think that definitely has something to do with it. But like, look, I mean, what you know, $54,000 a year. First of all, I think if you're, if you're racking $54,000 $54, a year out of your home, then you're doing something extraordinarily special. <laughs> and so I would hope that if that, that's the case, that they're not for long in their home and they're, you know, soon to be a food truck or a brick and mortar somewhere.
0: You know, so you went through this process, you became the first Miko in Alameda County. And then, like, you actually kind of made a big deal about the grand opening of your business, right? I know this is partly with the Cook Alliance, but can you describe what that grand opening day was like?
1: Oh, man, phenomenal, right? I bet he went. Uh, ways to go check it out you can you know you can see it on some of my social media platforms i mean we pulled out all the stops right there was a lot of press there that day i had my own video guys there my own photographer guys i mean we had a drone <laughs> run you know some footage from the top of my backyard uh, we had the mayor of san leandro here a couple other politicians from other cities as well as the city manager and you know folks from just other political organizations. And then we have the Cook Alliance team here. And so yeah, it was absolutely a big deal because we just wanted to highlight like how successful this could actually be and the feel of everyone in my backyard. And they're sitting there and they're eating and they're having a good time. And you're sitting here saying this is no different from if a group of people were in a restaurant at a gathering or, you know, renting out a back room at the restaurant, except that they were in my backyard. And it was just, it was an unbelievable day. One of the things that, you know, as I've worked with Cook Alliance and, and as I've talked with other potential politicians or other folks who are always hesitant about a, a home cook, this is what I tell them. I say, how many times have you gone to a friend's backyard barbecue? Most of the times they say many times. And I said, were you ever concerned about how the food was cooked? (laughs) And they generally tell me no. And I said, if you're not concerned about going to a friend's backyard barbecue, then you should especially not be concerned with going to a home cook. Because I, I guarantee your friend doesn't have the food manager license. Your friend is not concerned about you getting sick. But the home cook is because it starts with the home cook and it leaves with the home cook. So it starts in their hands and it leaves their hands.
0: Let's talk about your menu a little bit. Like what's on your menu and what was on your menu initially when you started it illegally and what's on your menu today?
1: I'm actually going through, as we speak, a a menu rebamp right now, just based off of some things that are not on my menu that people have asked me to do. For instance, like brisket. I call all of my customers. that, that no, Nobody's considered a customer. They're considered a client. That is the term that I use for everybody. And so they're all clients. And so I'll be doing a brisket for clients. And that has come about over the last year because you can't get brisket here in San Leandro. There's not a place to get brisket. And so people come to me and they've started coming to me. And so now this is going to be a feature. It's going to be a, a special request item. But they'll ask for a brisket and it's about 15. It's usually about 15 hours for me to smoke them a brisket. So that we'll be adding that to the menu. One of the most popular things on my menu is the skinless boneless chicken thighs, which have been kind of coined or dubbed by many of my clients as Cali thighs. And so I'll be switching as I revamp this upcoming menu, they'll go from chicken thighs to Cali, they'll be titled Cali thighs and just kind of a appreciation to the folks who have had them. And, you know, I've got these portobello mushrooms that, you know, I smoke on the grill and then I do a lot of pork butt for folks. And so smoking that, that's usually pretty anywhere between an eight- the 10 hour process. Uh, Everything I do here is charcoal and it's wood. So it's not on a trigger. It's not with a pellet grill. There's no propane here. It's purely charcoal and it's wood. And it's really trying to stick as close to just like the authenticity of like smoking meat. And so the example, when I'm doing a 15 hour smoke, you know what? I'm getting very little sleep. Through that process, because I'm checking the temperature, the internal temperature of the meat, I'm checking the external temperature of the grill, and I'm working just through all of the elements that I actually have to do to ensure that any item that's being smoked is going to be to like the standard that I'm actually setting for like smoking meat here in San Leandro.
0: So I know you have a lot of things on your menu. You do, I think, all barbecue, right? But what I thought was kind of interesting is that you don't do the very most common barbecue items, right? Like burgers, hot dogs. I didn't see anything like that on your menu.
1: No, you'll never see a burger or hot dog on my grill. Unless you got a super special request for a kid party. I, I won't turn you down because I want to make your kid happy. But that's just not what I do here, right? There's some art that kind of goes behind this right and that's what I try to really make myself known for is like just kind of the art of being able to do something exceptionally and knowing that you can't get this anywhere else in San Leandro at least not at this time I know maybe one other guy potentially doing this and I don't think he's legal (laughs) um and I don't think he has any you know pretty interest in being But I want people to be like, man, I I can go to Grilly Q and get a hickory smoke tri-tip and I can get it done, you know, medium rare or rare to like whatever they want it at. And they know that it's going to be an amazing tri-tip. They know it's going to have a a unique smoke flavor to it. And I think one of the things that you get with me, uh, this is great. So let's just, you know, David, let's just say you ordered a tri-tip from me, right? The tri-tip process is about an hour and a half, right? After I smoke it. And then I do this, you know, I do the direct grill or right indirect grill. But what I do for everyone who orders meat from me is I will show them like when their meat gets to, gets onto the grill and I'll show them when I've marinated their meat. I show them as I put it on the grill. And I will literally show them a text them a picture of like when it's about to come off. And there's just something relational the relationship between me, the client, that they actually see the start of their meat hitting the grill and they see the finished product before they even eat it. You know, it's an education process, right? So for instance, when you order a slab of ribs from me, right? One of the first things I ask is how many gifts do you have? And then I say there's 12 bones in a slab of ribs. And then we do the mathematical breakdown of how many actual bones that we think a person's going to eat at their event. And when you order a tri-tip for me, right, you don't just order a tri-tip from me because one of the first questions I ask you is, are you going to eat this right away? And they, you know, most of the times they say no. And my response is, I don't mind slicing your tri-tip, but I would prefer to leave it whole so the juices stay in the meat. And so when you're ready to cut it, you're getting it at like the optimal taste. And you just don't get that when you go into anywhere to like be able to like, order barbecue like I order meat or order anything right they take your order and you tell them how you want it and then they just fix it for you but I'm trying to create an experience here for you that not only did you just get a little bit educated on you know your meats and why I didn't slice it or why I gave you the option not to slice it or maybe I'm going to tell you I'm going to give you a to go container of apple cider vinegar. And I'm going to tell you to pour that, a little bit of that in your wrapped foil ribs. And then I'm going to tell you how to warm that up. So you have the best experience when you take those ribs out the oven for your guests.
0: So I saw that you only do meals for 15 guests or less. Is that uh, because of your own limitations or is that because of the limitations of the law?
1: No, I mean, it's, you know, that's, that's just a slight update that I got to do to my website, Normally I get up to about 20, about 25, you know, 15, that was kind of put there just as a, a initial limit. Cause I needed to kind of see where I was actually at. But for me, you know, my model, I've got a couple of different models kind of going here, which is like, for instance, I'll run a lunch special, right? And generally I'll run a lunch special. if I'm not taking what I call a customized order or customized dinner for somebody. And so I'll say, I'll run a lunch special this week and I'll go out on my email list and I'll put that out and people can come by and pick that up. But generally what I find myself doing is I'm not running lunch specials as often because I'm doing like these dinners for folks. Generally people, they'll call me by Wednesday, Thursday latest. And they, you know, we talk about what they actually want to eat. Um, They ask me questions. I give them kind of a detailed run through of some of the things that, you know, they might need to know that they're ordering. And then I shop, I go shopping for them. And then I prepare their meal. we, We talk about a set time for them to pick up. And so it's a great because you're never getting any frozen meat from me. I'm not defrosting anything. I'm never defrosting anything because I'm shopping on demand.
0: So considering that it's like such a, you know, client catered process? Like, are you charging for that? Like, do you charge premium pricing or how do you come up with the prices?
1: Yeah. So, you know, the, I think one of the the more unique things about my business is everyone gets what they call, I call it the, the car invoice. And so, as I mentioned, you put your order with it in with me and I go shopping for you. But when I give you your invoice, I show you your, the actual cost of your food, And on the top of your actual cost of your food, then I tack my labor onto it. And so just as you would get your car fixed, you generally see how much the parts cost you. And then you see the labor costs. Well, that's exactly what you get from me. And so we we have this conversation because it's like, look, if you want this much food, This is generally what it's going to cost you. And I get folks, I generally, and I've been doing this long enough now where I I have a a general idea of what the food is going to cost them. You know, sometimes I lose a couple of dollars here or there, but it's nothing really significant. And then I put my labor behind it. And then if it's too expensive, then we adjust the food. So we might, you know, take something off the menu or we might switch something out on the menu because as we change your menu, my labor changes at the same time. And you know what? It's been amazing to me that I get no argument or no pushback when I break the model down to them, because all they see is the fact that this guy just went shopping for me. And when they get the invoice under the description, it's shopping, food prep, grilling, really smoking of meat, and then I usually put how many hours it is that I'm smoking your meat. So when I put my labor cost in there, I've got an automatic supply cost built into that. Regardless, my supply costs, I got it anywhere between minimum $10 supply cost or a $20 supply cost. And so that's already built into my labor. That way, I'm also factoring in when I got to go back and I got to buy charcoal in the long run or I got to buy XYZ. I've actually factored in a supply cost over a period of time for, for each order. Did you see last year how uh, Kingsford came out and donated? I had a year of charcoal. Oh, I did
0: not see that.
1: They came out when I first became the legalized and they caught wind of it. And they caught wind that I used Kingsford charcoal. They came out and they brought a pallet of charcoal that took over a year for me to get rid of. And they came and ate breakfast. I couldn't barbecue breakfast for that morning at my house. It was pretty amazing.
0: Did that promotion from them increase your business at all
1: you know i don't know if it increased because i didn't really look at the metrics so like you know was there a ramp up in it but i definitely it increased my following on twitter for sure every once in a while i'll give them a plug in the marinade and i'll shoot it to them just to let them know they haven't gone anywhere
0: well uh we have to talk about your podcast right can you describe a little bit about that
1: hey man the marinade um I've got a podcast, just finished season two here of The Marinade, and it was really a way for me to combine like two things I love, like politics and barbecue, right? And so I've got a co-host, Steve Tavares from the East Bay Citizen, who writes about local politics in San Leandro. I reached out to Steve one day and I said, hey, you know, I kind of want to do this podcast all about San Leandro and, and politics in San Leandro. And yet at the same time, like give some exposure to my business at the same time. And so I drift up this idea of the marinade. And one of the things we do over the summer is local politicians come over and I prepare a barbecue meal for them. And we eat barbecue in my backyard. We talk barbecue and we talk politics. And so it's been just uh, an amazing two years of having folks over. For the listeners, it gives them an opportunity to see the local political official a little bit differently because, you know, we go back and forth badgering about politics, but we talk about their favorite piece of meat. What do they like about the barbecue? What do they like about what they're eating at that very moment? It's been such a fun way to be able to combine two things that I really love. And at the same time, as I get ready, you know, for season three, when the summer comes, you know, I've already been approached by just local business people saying, Hey, you know, is there a way for me to just get, pay a little bit of sponsorship for you to call out our business name on the podcast. And so that's something that I'm looking forward to being able to do this summer is, you know, charge something that's not ridiculous, but help some of these small businesses and throw a plug out to like help them out at the same time.
0: So I know that at the end of season one, you announced that you're running for mayor. Did you start the podcast as a way to start promoting yourself? Like, did you know that that was the goal when you started this podcast?
1: Yeah, there was definitely an underlying piece that I knew that I was actually building up to be able to put me kind of back in the spotlight that I was going to run for office. But at the same time, it was it also gave me a platform mm-hmm. To have some discussions about things politically here in San Leandro. And it gave me a platform to like cross-promote my business and get like my food in more people's hands.
0: I mean, you're definitely it seems like you've you've done quite a lot of orders and like you have no ambitions to take this to something bigger.
1: No, not at all. And if I do, it's gotta happen organically. If it happens organically, fantastic. If not, I just really like the people contact, you know, like the people contact and the, they come over, they have some conversation with me before they pick up their meal, they, you know, they take it. I think of anything like long-term, it's like the long-term plan to like, I could see myself maybe ramping this up when my girls go to college, <laughs> because I, I have a great inkling that it's not going to be a cheap college that they go to just based off of academically, how they've been over the last several years. And so I said, I, I see this as a maybe ramping it up even more to help maybe uh, offset, you know, a college cost because the 529 count's not going to do it by itself anymore.
0: I saw in a news article that you also like have or had aspirations to help fundraise to help other Mikos get started, right?
1: Absolutely. I still see that as a, a real ultimate goal here. Like a long term goal for me is how many Mikos will I be able to get support in San Leandro and help get open? I would love it if San Leandro was the poster child for Mikos throughout the county. And you know, just as I've helped a couple other folks not in San Leandro but within Alameda County get started, yeah, that's it will definitely be a long-term plan of mine of really trying to figure out how do I start more Mecos in San Leandro because everyone wins. You increase your food options here in San Leandro, right? You increase community here in San Leandro when you do that. And one of the things I say, which I feel is so unique about Miko, is that you potentially have the ability to taste food that is a generational recipe that you're probably not going to get in a a brick and mortar because that person never had the ability to open a brick and mortar. And so you think about the possible food, like the food that you're going to be exposed to that could possibly been passed down from generation to generation. You think about culturally the actual food options. Like one of the things people will see here when I revamp my menu is that I'll have garlic noodles on my menu, right? But I learned how to do the garlic noodles from my wife who learned how to do it from her mom. And so it's just, you know, being able to be able to do things like that, that right there, I really hope that I'm able to lead to charge here in San Leandro and be able to to open that door for folks.
0: Well, it is cool to see what you've already done and I know you're going to do a lot more in the future, but if somebody is interested in learning more about you or wants to know more about your business, where can they find you or how can they reach out?
1: Oh yeah, definitely. You can, They can easily send me an email at grill, grilliquew at gmail.com, so G-R-I-L-L-E-E-Q, at gmail.com. They can reach me that way. Uh, They can ping me on any of the social media platforms, so Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing with us today.
1: Oh, thanks for having me. And uh, as I say with any podcast that I might be on or my own podcast, you chill, we grill.
0: That wraps up another episode of the Forger Podcast. For more information about this episode, go to forger.com slash podcast slash 82. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please take a quick moment right now and leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. It doesn't have to be a long review, but it's truly the best way to support this show and will help others like you find this podcast. And finally, if you're thinking about selling your own homemade food, check out my free mini course where I walk you through the steps you need to take to get a cottage food business off the ground. To get the course, go to cottagefoodcourse.com. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you in the next episode.